0: Thanks for joining us. On this week's podcast, we talk about the B word, the stunning self inflicted wound that is Brexit, and how vulnerable Irish businesses are as a result. I'm Jonathan Healy, and this is Red Business. The Red
1: Business Podcast with CompUBE, building your business with premium Apple solutions. CompUBE.com.
0: And we're now joined on Red Business by the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Simon Coveney, who of course is a TD for Cork South Central. Minister, you're very welcome to the programme.
2: Thanks very much, Jonathan. I'm delighted to be on.
0: Uh, we are here, I suppose, still reeling after Hurricane Ophelia and Storm. Brian, you lost your roof. How's your roof?
2: It's <laughs> Still in my neighbour's garden, um, but at least we got power back. Um, uh, we were out of power for two and a half days or so, but I know that there are lots of other people who still haven't got their power back. Um, half across Avon for a start, uh, and also a a lot of other rural areas uh, and towns. So, I mean, uh, I don't think there's ever been a coordinated operation to try to get people reconnected uh, uh, like we have now. You know, we've got teams from Scotland, from England, from France uh, in helping uh, ESB networks to get people connected. And I think to be fair to ESB and the other teams that are helping them, they're literally working around the clock to try and get houses uh, and businesses reconnected.
0: Uh, the storms
2: all came from the West,
0: as Atlantic storms do. It's the storm coming from the East that is preoccupying a lot of your mind at the moment. That is Storm Brexit. The last couple of weeks have been very confusing for people watching on, trying to work out just what is happening in terms of British policy. Are you any of the wiser as to what the British government is doing right now with regard to Brexit and what direction it is going?
2: Well, I mean, it's a very divided government, um, uh, uh, unfortunately, from our perspective. Uh, I I think, to be fair, Theresa May as a prime minister is trying to give leadership on Brexit now. Uh, Her speech a number of weeks ago in in Florence uh, did shift their position. Um, They're now talking about a two-year transition, Uh, they're talking about trying to negotiate a customs union partnership with the EU, Uh, they're talking about trying to negotiate a a trade partnership as opposed to demanding a free trade agreement with the EU. Um, They of course want to move on to the next phase of negotiations which is to, to start discussing trade and transition arrangements and so on. Uh, within the EU side, we've said no to that uh, because we need to, to resolve some other things first, which is what was agreed at the start of the negotiations. And there are three big issues that need to be resolved. One is citizens' rights. So you know, EU citizens in Britain, where do they stand after Britain leave uh, on, you know, on visas and permits and so on, um, on what's called the financial settlement which is, you know, Britain has committed to contribute to EU budgets for the next few this years. Is the divorce bill. As they call it. The, well, I mean, Britain calls it the divorce bill as if it's some kind of fine for leaving. Uh, we on the on the other side of the table are saying, look, that's nonsense. This is just asking you to pay what you said you'd pay into the EU budget. Because if you don't pay, well, then other countries are going to have to pay for it because it's it's already committed expenditure in in areas like research and the Common Agricultural Policy, Common Fisheries Policy, and lots of other areas. Um, And then, of course, the third big issue that needs to be resolved before we can give a green light to moving on to talking about trade is the Irish issues. You know, how do we protect the peace process? How do we implement in full the Good Friday Agreement? Um, You know, Britain has um, has uh, itemised 143 different areas of North-South cooperation uh, that 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 we manage as an all island uh, or with an all island. Approach. The problem is that at least half of those areas uh, were designed on the basis of uh, Northern Ireland and the rest of Ireland being part of the same European Union uh, uh, under the same rule book. Um, so, you know, you know, animal health, food safety, environmental management, all those kind of areas. Um, um, so that's that's proving very complicated, but but we're working through it We're also um, and I think the first big win of the Brexit negotiations will be on what's called the common travel area. So Ireland and Britain have since 1923 since independence, uh, Ireland and Britain have essentially recognized each other's citizens and have allowed free movement between the two islands, uh, access to health care, social welfare, you can carry your pension entitlements, you can vote in each other's countries. Uh, and we, we think we're going to get a deal on that, that that will be protected even post-Brexit, which would be a really good deal for Ireland. And then, of course, the really complicated issue of the border.
0: So do you, you, think, the com- do you think the common travel area will be retained? Yes, I do. Uh, Why? I mean, th- th- there's so much going on I- in terms of those negotiations. What has given you the confidence that that is going to happen?
2: Well, because I mean, we're part of those negotiations. I mean, Ireland is essentially on the, the EU negotiating task force. We speak to them every day. Um, Michel Barnier leads that task force I speak to him a lot That's my job in government um, uh, My job is to coordinate the government's response In Brexit and to make sure that Ireland Remains at the centre of those negotiations And I think you can safely say we are um, And Britain knows now that, that the Irish issues need to be resolved uh, Or at least we need to make Significant progress on them uh, because without that, they can't move on to what they want to talk about, which is trade and transition and the future relationship. O-
0: overall, so, though, Simon, how would you categorise what is happening with Brexit? I mean, to me, it seems like it's a complete shambles on the British side. I mean, you're watching this from the European Union side. How would you categorise?
2: No, but look, you know, I'm not sure, you know, name calling and slagging each other off solves anything here. Uh, this needs to be negotiated around a table. It is true to say that the British position is um, uh, has been shifting and changing Um, the the main opposition party in britain has you know changed their position also and has now sort of firmed up a position that they want a four-year transition period where nothing changes where britain stays in the customs union and in the single market and they're uh, and they're looking at making that you know a permanent arrangement as well potentially after a transition um, the Conservative Party has also had and continues to have a very active and difficult and divisive debate within it um, on this issue. So like, what we have is a, a very divided party and a government that is not a majority, uh, relying on the DUP to actually stay in office. Um, and so, y- yeah, there is a lot of uh, instability there. Uh, on the other side, the, the, the EU, I think, is pretty much crystal clear yeah. <laughs> in terms of what it wants. You know, The rules are the rules. We need to apply them. Um, and while we want to try to facilitate an orderly Brexit, while we want to have a good trading relationship with Britain in the future, uh, we can't undermine the single market to do that. And um,
0: one of the things that has been mentioned quite a lot is that there's a distinct possibility there would be no deal. Do you think that we could get there?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think a no deal s- situation would be massively damaging for Ireland. Um, And just just so people understand how serious this is, I mean, we have a 65 billion euro trade relationship with Britain, Ireland has. Uh, That's 1.3 billion every single week. There are 200,000 people in Ireland employed Uh, linked with that trading relationship between Ireland and Britain in the food industry and technology and software and medtech and retail uh, and so many other areas, um, fishing, agriculture. Um, So, you know, a no deal scenario essentially means that when Britain leaves in 2019, there is no transition. To a new reality. Uh, WTO rules apply, that's you know, World Trade Organization rules apply. That effectively means that tariffs apply automatically to products. On beef, for example, a 60% tariff would apply on Irish beef being sold in the UK. Um, on dairy products, you know, in and around a 40% tariff. Uh, don't forget that 40% of all of the milk that is produced on farms in Northern Ireland gets processed south of the border. Uh, that wouldn't be able to happen anymore. So, you know, you're talking about uh, a hugely damaging impact on the Irish economy, but also on the British economy. I mean, some people have, have put the cost of Britain leaving without a deal over the next 10 years of, of uh, as in and around 400 billion euros. But the one thing so, that's
0: become quite clear from Brexit I mean. is that when all of this is considered... The British government is somewhat naive, is somewhat ostrich-like head in the sand that they may end up with this actual scenario. There are Prexiteers who are now suggesting that, so, well, this is a real possibility. And how can the British government have found itself in this position?
2: Well, I, I mean, I think it is very unfortunate that, that, that the British government have found themselves in this position. Of course, people need to talk tough. Uh, because that's the nature of political negotiation. So Britain will make the, make the case that look, if they have to, they'll go it alone, and they can do, they can survive in a no deal scenario, because that helps them to advance their interests in the context in the context of the deal that they want to negotiate. Uh, just like the EU side uh, will say something similar. But nobody wants a no deal scenario, or at least nobody with a head on their shoulders, uh, can defend that position. This would be very damaging to Britain, very, very damaging to Ireland, and also somewhat damaging to the EU as a whole. But make no mistake, it would be far, far more damaging to Britain than it would be for the EU as a whole. The problem for Ireland is because we are so connected with Britain and like we have this interwoven relationship from a business environment point of view in particular, but also outside of business in terms of family connections and so on. Um, that a very bad deal for Britain would also be a very bad deal for us. I mean, don't forget there are as many Irish-born people living in Britain as there are people mm. in Connacht.
0: Yes, but at the same time, Theresa May was making one big pitch this week to all of those people to say, well, we want you to stay post-Brexit. I mean, could we have a scenario whereby Irish people who are living in Britain, Irish citizens may have to leave? I mean, is, is no. that
2: a possibility? No, I don't think that is a possibility because I think we, we're going to get a deal in the common travel area which means that Irish people will be able to continue to do as they do at the moment. The problem for the for, for Ireland, though, is that, you know, it's not all Irish people in Ireland. You know, So, like, if you look at a company, any one of the big uh, pharmaceutical or medtech companies, or if you look at a big company like Apple, you know, a lot of these big employers also have a big footprint in the UK. And they have international teams working in Ireland and the UK. So we could have this bizarre scenario where under a common travel area, agreement and an arrangement irish people could move back and forth but if you're spanish or dutch or or polish you 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 couldn't without a permit um so like this is why um we need common sense in the context of these negotiations so that we can maintain the kind of relationship trading relationship with britain that we have today there will undoubtedly be some changes um, and at the same time recognize that politically they're leaving the european union the problem with that of course is that there are many who would say well look hang on a second we can't allow Britain to enjoy the same trading relationship that they have with the EU because there has to be a consequence to leaving. You can't hold on to all of the benefits of being a member of the club yet leave the club and try to negotiate these other benefits all over the world. With, um, so, so there is a need for a dose of reality here uh, that I think a lot of uh, British people don't have because I think um, the British government has sold something that is simply unachievable in the context of what Britain is looking for from Brexit. They want to leave, but hold on to all the benefits of staying, and then derive be- new benefits from supposedly being able to negotiate these free trade agreements all over the world, which I don't see materialising any time soon. So as that reality dawns on Britain, it is, it is causing huge political upheaval, which is what, what, what we're currently seeing. Uh, and the EU, I think, needs to be steady and firm and consistent, but also respectful of Britain. Because I think slagging off Britain and accusing them of being all over the place and so on will simply uh, make it more difficult for somebody like Theresa May to make the um, the necessary alterations in terms of their approach towards Brexit policy that can get the deal done.
0: You're obviously dealing with this on a, on a, on a very high level in the centre of these negotiations. Many of the businesses here in Cork where we are right now, um, they're Brexit fatigued. They've been thinking about this. You know, many of them will have gone to Enterprise Ireland forums or maybe they would have taken the steps within their own company to prepare for Brexit, prepare for Brexit. And at this point now, they're going, good God, what are we preparing for? There's a real risk that business... Really get lethargic about this because it hasn't happened yet.
2: Well, I mean, let me just be very clear on that. You know, people might get tired of Brexit politically or from a business point of view, but they'd be very foolish to, because this is uh, an enormous change potentially <coughs> to how business functions uh, and how the relationship between Ireland and Britain. Like, don't forget, this isn't a political storm that just you know we will batten down the hatches, get through, and then everything will be okay on the other side. Like, we are we're talking about here permanently changing the relationship between Ireland and Britain and negotiating what that's going to look like. And, and people um, who are saying, well, look, so, it's not going so to
0: happen. It's not going to happen. We don't need to worry about it that much. What do you say to them? Well,
2: I think Brexit is going to happen. Um, but I think the the form that it takes is what we're trying to negotiate at the moment to, to try to limit the damage where there is damage uh, potentially. And to try to take advantage of some of the opportunities that are undoubtedly there also. Because uh, there are opportunities to Brexit. But um, but I think the core thing for me, and particularly having come from an industry like agriculture and food, which has this totally seamless trading relationship with Britain at the moment, um, you know, I understand just how important it is for companies to get clarity as to what Brexit is going to look like. So we will try to provide that clarity as soon as we can. Um, But at the moment, it's not possible to give clarity because we don't have an agreed uh, position with the UK. Uh, What we have is Britain saying they want to achieve certain things. They want to protect the Good Friday Agreement. They want to agree to maintain the common travel area. They want to have a seamless border. They don't want to have any border infrastructure. But they don't have any credible plan in terms of how they're going to deliver that. Mm. Uh, and, And that's what the negotiations over the next six or eight months is going to be about. Uh, and obviously my job is to protect Irish interests and to liaise with all of the stakeholders and interested parties, whether they're businesses or, uh, or political parties, uh, to try to make sure that we protect Ireland in that you know, really significant negotiation and, which is going on.
0: When you're back home in Cork, um, and you're talking to your constituents, you're talking to business people, what do they say is their number one concern about Brexit? And, and how grounded is it in the reality of what you're dealing with? Yeah, no, I mean, I
2: I think people are becoming more realistic now. I mean, at at the start of this debate, it was sort of disbelief. You know, like, this just can't happen. Mm. It's just too expensive. How could Britain think that this is a good thing? Um, Now, I think people realise Brexit is going to happen. Um, But what I believe British people voted for was Britain leaving the political institutions, of the European Union, I do not believe the British people voted to cut their trading ties with the single market of the European Union. So were the British people
0: um, misled in what they were voting on? Therefore,
2: right? well, no, because I think they knew. Well, I mean, I think the um, the referendum in the UK was misleading in in many ways, uh, but I actually think it's the aftermath where the current British government has. Uh, interpreted that vote in a way that I don't believe is accurate, um, which
0: is gung ho with 52% or 48%.
2: We're leaving. We're leaving. We're leaving. We're leaving the customs union. We're leaving the single market. We're leaving the European Union. We're out. We're out. We're out. Uh, and then we're going to renegotiate a free trade arrangement as if you know the EU is like some third country that they'd negotiate a trade ar- uh, arrangement like like they would with Canada or Australia or the US. Um, and I think that lang- you know, that language. Uh, essentially uh, allowed many people in Britain to believe that they could hold on to all the benefits of membership from a trade point of view, and yet they could you know, negotiate all of these supposedly wonderful new trade agreements all over the world. I don't think either of those two things are true. Um, I think uh, negotiating free trade agreements for Britain on its own will be difficult and time-consuming. It's of course it's possible, but it's but but it's it, it's time consuming. But I also think that negotiating a free trade agreement with the EU in a hostile negotiating environment would be very very difficult, uh, and uh, and you know and the EU holds all the cards, or at least most of them. Let's talk about domestic matters if we can. Your own t- hometown
0: of Cork. Uh yeah. We Things have improved an awful lot in the last while. We've seen economic growth. We've seen the return of the cranes, a little bit behind Dublin perhaps, but that's understandable. What is the current economic state of Cork? Is it in as good a nick as people have said it is, or are there still potentials for da- for, for damage and mistakes being made again? Well, look, I mean...
2: First of all, you know, the, the southern region of Ireland, which is, which is, which is Cork and Kerry at Southwestern, you know, I think has the lowest unemployment in the country now. It's down to about 4.3, or 4.4 percent, which really is, you know, incredible when you think it was probably up around 16 percent um, uh, seven or eight years ago. Um, but look, in some ways that disguises some of the challenges that we face. You know, there's lots of young families that still are managing a lot of debt. Uh, there's still some that have negative equity in their homes. Uh, we have a big housing challenge uh, in Cork Um, rents are too high um, and have been increasing which is why we introduced essentially rent caps last um, last January Um, uh, but we need significantly more house building and and building of high quality apartment uh, complexes and developments in the city centre if we're going to Um, uh, deliver the kind of growth that Cork has the potential to deliver. The state needs to invest very significantly in infrastructure. So, you know, if you look at the, um, the upcoming capital expenditure program, which will be launched towards the end of November or early December, you know, you're talking about N22, N28... Uh, the Dunkettle interchange, the M20 between Cork and Limerick, which will be a motorway that the government's now committed to. Uh, there's a need for a northern ring road. Um, you know, we've already put 30 million euros into sporting infrastructure in Porky Quayve, but there's there's uh, there's more investment needed in sport and leisure. Uh, we need an event centre to get up and running, which, which is
0: a long time coming, and people will hear those three yeah. words, Cork event centre, and wonder where
2: it is. Well, I mean, you know, uh, uh, we now have a a far more than realistic prospect of making this happen. It's almost there. We've had many false dawns mm-hmm. in, in the past. i, I to say
0: we were almost there before. No, Why are we almost there now? Well no well
2: no, Jonathan, that's not That's actually not the case, we weren't almost there before. We now have a site with full planning permission, we have the largest building firm in the country wanting to build it, and we have the largest event management company in the world in Live Nation willing to to put 30 million euros of their own money into it. Uh, And we have the state who's already committed 20 million euros to this project, and the developers have asked for more, we're willing to give more, but there are legal constraints in terms of how much more. So that is very much being finalized uh, at the moment. I'm very associated with this project. I know I've been working on it for 4 years and I am determined to make it happen, but I have to also make sure that the government spends money within the rules uh, and that we can stand over that in terms of value for money spend and you know, you know 20 or 30 million euros is a lot of money for the state to put into a project, but we want to do that. So uh, give give me a date. Want give to me a date
0: happen. when we're going to see the first concert in the event center.
2: Look, I'm not giving you... <laughs> I've given up on given dates, right? All I'm saying is that we are, in my view, within weeks of of making a final decision to hopefully move ahead with that project. Um, I don't control all the levers there. Uh, BAM are very much involved, as our Live Nation, as are you know, the Department of Arts, who are actually the government department that deals with it. So, I mean, I'm around the Cabinet table dealing with it, but... Uh, and, of course, Pascal Donahue and the Department of Public Expenditure are also involved. But we're determined to make it happen. But that's not the only project in Cork, by the way. You know, like, uh, and, uh, and there's been huge private sector investment in terms of new office space in the city. And there's loads of new projects. There'll, uh, there'll be at least two new hotels, you know, three new hotels in the city, in my view, in the next few years. Uh, and we're going to be launching a national planning framework, which essentially is... Um, uh, deciding how the country is going to progress and develop for the next 20 years and Cork will be the fastest growing place in Ireland for the next 20 years Uh, and that is why the government is talking about spending billions of euros Mm -hmm. in, in, in terms of transport infrastructure, road infrastructure, entertainment and sporting infrastructure and that's why we want to facilitate we've already committed tens of millions of euros to making the docklands ready for a significant level of of private residential investment as well as commercial office space and, and that's starting and
0: that's all happening one other dirty question I have to ask you is about the local authorities because a lot of people are saying that much of all, much of the progress you're talking about is being held back because we're having a spat between how big Cork City is going to be how yeah, small yeah. Cork County right. is going to be you know you were in the department when this was being decided now it's been moved to Owen Murphy um, how much of a hindrance is the boundary issue to the progress that you're talking about?
2: Well the first thing I want to say about local authorities is that I think we've seen an extraordinary response from both Cork City Council and Cork, Cork, Cork County Council in the last in the last 10 days uh, when Cork was hit with its first hurricane let's face it, um, I think the local authorities have been incredibly proactive in responding to that preparing for it um, at liaising with all of the other emergency bodies so I would you know, I think people need to maybe stop and think for a second about the value of having good local government. Uh, we've seen that in the last 10 days or so when it was badly, badly needed. And you know, people will always want more in terms of road resurfacing and all the rest of it. But I think in a, in a really pressurized situation, they've done brilliantly. Um, that said, that said right, I have maintained for over 10 years that if Cork is going to be a real alternative to Dublin, for growth, for expansion, for job creation, for economic development um, well then we need to change our local governance structures. Uh, I believe the city is too small, Um, I think its footprint is too small, I think the relationship between the city and county is not a balanced one. Uh, You're talking about about 120, 130,000 people officially in the city and you're talking about over 400,000 people in the county, that isn't a balanced relationship. Uh, in terms of rates bases, you know, we, we could have so had this conversation so we, go, we could have
0: had this conversation five years Let ago we had reports Let after reports
2: Let me finish right so uh, we have tried to deal with this issue, which is anytime you try to change governance structures and boundaries it 's always very contentious. you know Alan Kelly tried to do it uh, when he was in my previous job when he was responsible for local government and housing. Um, he put a, a, uh, a team of people in place, led by Al Smitty, who happens to be a good friend of mine, actually. Um, and we got two reports from that process, a majority report and a minority report. Uh, you know, uh, and they contradicted each other, and they resulted in a very divisive and difficult debate. I think there was a lot of good things in both of those reports, by the way, in particular in the Smitty report. Um, um, but clearly, there was no consensus as to how we were going to move forward. Um, so what I did was I asked, uh, I brought in a, a real outsider, but, but someone of real experience, uh, Jim McKinnon from Scotland, who was the chief uh, planning advisor to the Scottish government. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I said, look, and I put another, you know, other people around him who knew Cork well and who were genuinely independent. And I said, look, can you look at at all of the work that's been done on this and come back to me with recommendations using... Um, you know what you would regard as sort of best international practice so that Cork can design a governance structure for the next 50 years. And then,
0: to be fair, he, Jim McKinnon he brought that, that back. Right? But he the did. problem is they haven't implemented that well, either.
2: Well, hang on a second. We are implementing it. Right? Um, uh, that report made a lot of uh, recommendations. The one thing it didn't do is it didn't draw an exact boundary line. Uh, what it recommended w- was a rough boundary line on a map and that we would set up an implementation group that would actually draw the precise boundaries. And that is what we're doing at the moment. Uh, and we are taking on board uh, what are genuine concerns coming from the County Council and from the City Council in terms of trying to get that boundary right uh, uh, without undermining the main thrust of the McKinnon Report, which I believe is very good, which is that we need a much bigger city. Uh, we need to redraw the city boundary. Um, and then we need to require, by law, uh, a proper and professional collaboration between the city and the county in the metropolitan Cork area uh, and in the city uh, because the city will be a driver for the whole region and therefore Cork County has to have a say in the fundamental development so of the, the city. Bottom so
0: uh, the bottom line is that McKinnon is being implemented here, that Cork City is going to go out and the likes of Larney, for example, no, so or the bottom line Toul- is no.
2: The bottom line is uh, we will now get a final recommendation from the implementation group uh, as to where the boundary should be. Uh, I think there'll be some changes, uh, recognising legitimate concerns that the county have had, but also uh, recognising uh, much of the case that the city ha- has been making. Uh, and I've been listening to, uh, and I've been speaking to On Murphy, as you'd expect, uh, and uh, the government will then ultimately make a decision on that. And sometimes there are compromises needed, but I don't think the compromises should be so fundamental as to undermine the thrust of the McKinnon Report And I think you will get a decision on that within the next couple of weeks.
0: I wonder, is it easier to negotiate Brexit than the Cork boundary (laughs) issue,
2: given that you've had to do both? Well, look, you know, I mean, if you're in politics just to have an easy life, you'd never take any of these decisions, right? And the easy thing for me to do was just to leave well alone and to leave what I regard as an inappropriate governance structure for the future of Cork. And I am really ambitious for Cork City and for Cork County. We are planning for a county and city of 850,000 people We're planning for a city that is going to increase its its, its population after the boundary extension by about 60% in the next 20 years. That's about an extra 60,000 housing units in the city area, Um, an extra population of of about 100,000 people. Um, So Cork is going to be a really dynamic, growing, expanding place, as well as economy, as well as society, uh, over the next 10 to 20 years. It's going to be a very exciting place be living in and to be part of and I need to make sure that we have a governance structure that can make that happen Uh, and I am not going to shirk from making difficult decisions in that regard because people put me under pressure or whatever Uh, I would much rather make the hard decisions and defend those because I think they're right rather than make popular decisions in the short term but be criticised for that in 10 years' time. Okay. Uh, and that's what we will try to do.
0: Minister Simon Coveney, thank you very much for talking to us in Red Business.
2: Thanks a million. Anytime.
0: The
1: Red Business Podcast with CompuB Business. Improving productivity with the latest Apple technology. CompuB.com
0: So just what should businesses do to prepare for Brexit? Well, I spoke with Colette Quinn of Real Insights Marketing and started by asking why people were pretty much ignoring what's going on.
1: I think people are probably a bit apprehensive about it I think they don't know what they should be doing what they could be doing I think there's a huge level of uncertainty out there in the marketplace as to what it actually will mean day to day for a business um, and we know the businesses aren't prepared if we look at the intra-trade latest business monitor results only three percent of exporters actually have a Brexit plan of any shape or form so three percent and that's barely moved since the beginning of the year so Why is that? Why aren't people actually doing something around, well, where could I actually sell my products and services outside of the UK, within mainland Europe? Could we go to Asia? Could we go to the States? They're not looking at the other opportunities that could be there for them as a business.
0: There seems to be an underlying suspicion that this is going to go away, that, that mm-hmm. they'll wake up, it's like a Bobby Ewing in the shower moment, <laughs> that they'll realize that Theresa May will get out and realize, oh, we're still in the European Union, oh, thank God, it was all a terrible dream.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think it's going to go away, and we had Frances Fitzgerald last week um, on a trade mission to Asia-Pac, where she talked about it not going away, where she talked about a lot of businesses hoping that the second round negotiations in October might yield something, but saying, you know, we need to plan. And the, you know, the ambassadors over there would say, if you're an exporter, you need to start engaging with what Brexit means for you as a business and looking at the opportunities that are there. Because there's a whole pile of opportunities out there. I mean, Kingspan, for instance, just opened an office in Singapore
0: last week. Why do we focus? Is it because Britain's been such a strong trading partner that we can't imagine life without them? And there still will be Mm. life with them, but Mm. perhaps Mm. we need to insulate ourselves a little bit more than Mm. we have been Mm. to date.
1: Well, when we look at the UK historically, it was always the ideal first export market for businesses here. You know, it was easy, same language, same business culture, um, general consumer culture if you look at it. So it was always somewhere where we as a business, looking at feasibility or commercial viability for businesses, would always look to the UK first because it was an ideal springboard to get there. Um, But if we we look at it at the moment, like we export 40% of our goods And 20% of our services into the UK currently and that's twice the EU average so if we're looking at difficulty with trading with the UK then we need to look at other markets and diversify and then look at okay what markets can I sell my products and services to now which ones are going to be advantageous for me in terms of growth potential and then mitigate risk so there might be 20 or 30 different countries that you could potentially export to but which ones are we going to prioritize as a business
0: moving Mm -hmm. forward and why Outside of that, what do businesses need to do now to start? Okay, so they need to identify alternative markets. They need to lay the groundwork, maybe reduce their reliance on Mm. Britain. Mm. But how do they start going about doing that? Well, there's a lot of supports out there.
1: Enterprise Ireland, for instance, have launched a new Be Prepared grant, which gives businesses, their existing EI client base, um, €5,000 to engage with market research experts such as ourselves to look at exploring different markets for them to see where there could be other 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 potential for them. So there's supports out there from government agencies, but I think it goes back to internally within a business where people start looking at how they do business, who they do business with, what type of customers they have. Maybe there's, you know, they haven't leveraged the customers they have already that could potentially bring them more business or they could be you know, doing trade with businesses in the UK that might have a presence in other markets. So could they start the conversation there? And let's let's be, I suppose, realistic about it as well, not customers are all created equal. So do we have identified internally sweet spot customer? What does that look like? Where could there be more of those type of customers in other markets? And actually shaking the trees and really interrogating how they do business and looking at where there could be other opportunities for their product and service
0: when it comes down to all of this though when Brexit happens there will be companies who will suffer badly and there's companies who are Mm. suffering now because of the exchange rate which I know has been up and down a little bit Mm. but is still a lot worse off than Mm. it would have been Mm. say 18 months ago Um, there are going to be casualties unless people deal with this so Mm. this this is a pretty real situation for very serious intelligent people to ignore Mm.
1: well as we start the interview talking about the fact that people aren't ready for this at all 3% of exporters have a plan What are the other 97 percent doing are they just hoping that brexit is going to go away it's not going to go away so let's start using the time now to start planning where we can sell our products and services to outside of the uk diversify diversify and have and just start having the conversation internally and i know it's hard as like i'm a business owner it's hard to because you're in the trenches a lot of the time just busy doing the day-to-day stuff and operating on a day-to-day level but let's start researching and looking at what can be done. I know you had Pat Phelan on, formidable Pat Phelan on a couple of weeks ago, and he said before he goes into any new venture or looks at any market, he He, w- studies he, he, a lot. he research, he yeah. research, research, research. That's what businesses need to do. Let's start having a conversation. And if the skill set isn't there internally, then go outside of the company and get somebody in to help you. out Just even kickstart kick things and start talking about it and get the help mm. to start shaping it. Because there's multitude of opportunities out there and we're not tapping into it if you look at japan for instance exports are up 19 um in the last 12 months up to 150 million now so there's huge opportunity and i think we've been blinkered because the uk has always been so easy to deal with and it's been in you know very easy to do business with them so let's look outside that and we are going to be the only um english-speaking country left in the eu now when, when the uk leaves so that opens up huge opportunities for us so let's start being optimistic and looking at the opportunities for growth and scale and not be doom and gloom about it because these businesses are operating at the moment they're exporting to the gate why can't they export to other countries they can hmm. but let's start talking about it and exploring and investigating how they can do that okay
0: colette quinn of real insight thank you very much for joining us thank on red business.
1: business thank you very much indeed thank you for the opportunity
0: my thanks to both minister simon coveney and to colette quinn and of hennessy as well for helping put it all together Don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and we'll catch you on the next one.
1: The Red Business Podcast with CompUB Apple
0: technology and solutions for your business. CompUB.com.